0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Thaddeus read to us earlier from John 13, and we're going to focus on a section of that passage from John 13. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me back there? And we're going to read and focus in on verses 31 through 35. And this says, Therefore, when he had gone out, remember this is Judas who has just left. Jesus has just sent him out. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. This is the commandment. That you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So look here at what Jesus does. We see that even here, remember on Palm Sunday, we learned of Jesus' kingship and his royal rule, but we see even here that Jesus continues to claim his right as our king because he gives us not just a commandment, But he gives us what he says is a new commandment. And what Jesus is doing is claiming the authority of our lawgiver, of our Lord. And he claims this authority by telling his disciples, I give you a new commandment. So what's new about this commandment? Why a new commandment? Well, the fact that we ought to love people is not new. Neither is a high degree of love a new thing. God in his law has always commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we even see love and compassion for enemies all throughout the Old Testament law. And Jesus opens up for us that reality in the Sermon on the Mount. So what's new about this commandment? The answer is... Jesus is new. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Here we have a new thing. The Son of God has come in the flesh to manifest God's love in a completely new way that has not been known or seen in such perfection before. The disciples here now on this night are sitting in the presence of the Son of Righteousness. That's S-U-N. The Son of Righteousness. The brightest expression of God's holiness and the perfect fulfillment of obedience to God's law. Jesus has come and he is the new standard. By revealing himself to us. He's up the ante and made love your neighbor as yourself a fuller commandment by exposing its true meaning, which is love one another as I have loved you. Remember what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do when the Holy Spirit comes? Just a couple chapters later in John, remember that Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you remember why? The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, needs to come to convict the world of righteousness. He says that he is going to the Father and will no longer be with them. In other words, Jesus will be gone, he will no longer be present with them in the flesh. And we need the Holy Spirit to show us His righteousness and His glorious perfection. And the Spirit did this when He came by inspiring those very disciples to record Jesus' words, His deeds, and His love to His people in God's Word. And the Holy Spirit witnesses to us today through Scripture and through His work in our hearts, and He reveals to us Jesus and His righteousness. Which we need because we don't have Jesus with us in the flesh right now. But Jesus is with his disciples at this point and he has come. He is the standard of true love. The man by whom God will judge the world. And this is the newness of his commandment to his disciples. He commands them that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's why this commandment is new. There's a new expression of God's love, and it's in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. So now we need to ask the question, how did Jesus love his disciples? Why did he say this? What does it mean? How did he love them? What is he teaching them? Now at this point, we need to put ourselves with the disciples and Jesus on this night. So put yourself there in the garden, eating with Jesus and his closest friends and followers. We're at the end of three years of Jesus' life and ministry. Now think about yourself. Think about the things that have happened to you in the past three years. Okay? Think about what God has brought you through in the past three years of your own life. Think about the joys, the struggles, the mourning, the fellowship, and all the things that have happened to you in three years' time. You've been to weddings. You've been to funerals. Some of you have moved. You've changed jobs. You've suffered the death of close friends and relatives. And you've seen children born and brought into the world. Think about the time and the fellowship that you've had with God's people, with your family, with your small group, with your pastors, with your brothers and your sisters in three years' time. Now put yourself back with the disciples and think about the last three years of their lives with Jesus, their shepherd. This is the man who came and called them out of their lives as fishermen and tax collectors, who called them by name to come and live and minister with him. He's been in their homes and with their families. He's been eating and fellowshipping with them endlessly. They've seen him do the work of healing the lame and the blind, and he's even healed their own friends and relatives. And saved them from peril. Remember Jesus' mother-in-law, or, uh, Peter's mother-in-law? Jesus had compassion on her and raised her up from her sickness and fever. Over the past three years, Jesus has not ceased comforting the disciples in the midst of their distress. As they feared for their lives in the midst of a great storm, Jesus calmed that storm and taught them that when they trust in him, There is nothing to fear. Because he commands the wind and the waves. He rescued Peter from sinking in the wind and the waves as Peter began to fear and doubt. Jesus was Peter's rock. He's spent the past three years gently rebuking them and leading them by the hand. He's been their shepherd by caring for their souls and their health. Not only that, he's called them to share in his work and his power by sending them out to heal the sick and to preach the kingdom. He's defended them against the accusations of the scribes and the Pharisees. Against the hypocrites. He's even defended the disciples against Satan's own attacks on their souls and on their faith. He's been patient with their utter lack of understanding and their weak faith and their failure to trust in him. He's spent hours upon hours teaching them, praying with them, and loving them. He's called these men his friends and has such an affection and a love for them that he calls them, did you see? Little children. And not only has he put himself with them by being their friend, Jesus has made himself lower than they were in all sorts of ways, the most powerful of which, during his life, we just saw in the act of washing his disciples' feet, that he made his hands dirty so that their shame and their filth might be made clean. For three years, he's been putting every one of their needs above his own at every moment in every way. But, not one of these expressions of Jesus' love for his disciples even comes close to what he's about to do for them. Remember where we are. We're at the end of three years of giving his time and his love and his devotion to his disciples. Now we have the privilege of looking in from the outside and having John's commentary on what's going on and why. But the disciples don't have that advantage, right? He's just humbled himself by washing their feet and breaking bread with them and now Judas is gone. And you remember to the disciples that seems like an insignificant fact that Judas is gone. But that's how our passage starts. It says, When he had gone out from them, this is what Jesus says and does. Jesus says to Judas, What you do, do quickly. And it, then John says, Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. They're oblivious. But with Judas' departure, what has happened? The wheels have been set in motion. All the pieces are in place. All the tracks are laid. And with Judas' departure from their company, there is no turning back. Jesus knows this full well, even though his disciples do not know. Jesus knows what he's doing. And it's Jesus who sends him on his way. And Jesus knows what's going to happen. This is why after Judas leaves, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. By sending Judas out, The wheels are in motion. And when Jesus says that now is the Son of Man glorified, we know, looking in, that what he's really saying is, it's finally time for me to die. After all of his acts of love and devotion, it's finally time. It's time for Jesus to die for his friends. And everything has been leading up to this. And as his ministry has progressed to this point, we see him acting as a prophet of his own death. We hear from Matthew 16 that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Just before this night... In John 12, Jesus has said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And later, he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And John tells us that he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he was to die. And this very night, we know that he's been telling these disciples of his broken body and the blood that he will shed. Though the disciples' eyes are still dim and their faith is still weak, Jesus has made the reality of his death imminent and inescapable. He must die to show them the depth of his love. And the time for his death has come. In just a few minutes, he will say to them, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now see Jesus' great love for these men. He calls them his friends and has affection for them as little children. And these are his friends. He spent his life and his ministry identifying with them and calling them his own. But who are we talking about here? Who are these men that Jesus is calling his friends and his brothers? I'll tell you who they are they're sinners. These are the men who are constantly striving among themselves, vying for who they think is the greatest. These are men who were slow of understanding and took it upon themselves to try and rebuke Jesus for the things that he said. These men are sinners. And what that means is that, in other words, these men are by nature enemies of God. You see, Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends and brothers. In fact, he taught his disciples, you remember, that if all you do is love your brothers you're doing no more than the average pagan. No, Jesus isn't just loving and caring for his friends and brothers, because when it comes down to it, Jesus does not have any friends or comrades or brothers. Here are men who will presently, and we've seen it, men who will presently boldly proclaim their allegiance to their Lord, but will later that night be repeatedly denying him before men in the hour of his greatest need, as he's in the middle of laying his life down for them. Jesus was alone, and he was dying for his enemies. These were the disciples, and this is us. Listen to God's word In Romans 5, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. As I was thinking about this, I remember Jesus' prayer on the cross when He prays. As He's dying, He prays, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And oftentimes when I've looked at that prayer, I've thought, my initial thought is just to think, oh, well, Jesus is just throwing up this signal prayer just to show that he loves his enemies by, you know, praying for their forgiveness. But it's just kind of a, a show. He's just saying, you know, Father, forgive them. But God answered that prayer, didn't he? He wasn't just praying for... The wicked men who were crucifying him. Sticking the nails in the hands. He was praying for his disciples. God answered the prayer that Jesus prayed to his father. That his disciples would be forgiven. That his enemies would become his friends through the blood that he spills. We are by nature enemies of God. Because we are sinners. That's what a sinner is. It's an enemy of God, This is what we're teaching our two-year-old right now. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Right? It's that simple. Sin is an act of hatred toward God. Sin is enmity with God. And we must realize, because of that, what it means to say that Jesus is a friend of sinners. It means the men and women and children that he's calling his friends... Are those who have set themselves in their hearts and their actions against God and therefore against Jesus Himself. And yet these are the people that Jesus loves. And we are the enemies that He loves. We're the enemies of God that He has called through His death and His blood to be friends and servants and children of God instead of enemies. He gave his life for us that we might be reconciled to God and walk in newness of life. And this death was absolutely necessary because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins and no fellowship with God. But that's not all. Jesus not only died to reconcile us to God, but he died to reconcile us to one another. And we desperately need the blood of Jesus to be truly reconciled to one another because we are, as scripture says, by nature children of wrath. He's not only the mediator between me and God, he's the mediator between me and the men I'm to call my brothers. He's the mediator between me and the women I'm to call my sisters. Because naturally we are full of envy, strife, and jealousy. We are no different than the disciples. We can hardly go five minutes without being at enmity with each other. I wish I could say that we spiritual men in the pastor's college were free from envy and strife. But that's not true. As soon as I see the gifts God has given to other men, jealousy and hatred well up inside of me like a volcano. And the things I should rejoice in become an occasion of strife because of an unwillingness to put selfish ambition to death. And while we might not be so base as to argue out loud about who's the greatest... You can be sure that is always what's going on in our hearts when there is jealousy. We do this with our roommates, with our children, with our husbands, with our wives. And if you're like me, you often find yourself waiting for your brother to sin in some way so that you can hold it against him and elevate yourself. We're always advancing our own cause and justifying our own pleasures to the detriment of those closest to us. By nature, we're even enemies of our own children because of our sin. They set themselves against us by their selfishness and rebellion, and we set ourselves against them by our self-protection, our anger, and our love of pleasure. But Jesus died to set us free from this strife. When he says, love one another, even as I have loved you, he puts himself at the center of our relationships with one another. He could have put it another way by saying, as I have forgiven you, forgive others. And he does teach that, doesn't he? When he teaches that he is, who is forgiven little, loves little. But he who is forgiven much, loves much. Has Christ forgiven you of your rebellion and wickedness? Has he called you out of enmity with God to be his friend and his brother? Then love your brother who sins against you, which is to say, love your enemy. Die for your enemy as Jesus died for you. If we are to love one another, we must die for one another. Now, not many of us will be called to do anything cinematic or romantic, like dive in front of a bus or take a bullet. That's what we usually think of when we think of dying for someone. But the reality is, is that Christ calls us to the work of dying every day. If I am to love my wife, my children, my brothers, my sinful desires must die. Because those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. My fleshly desires and passions must die. And they must die the same brutal death that Jesus died. They must be nailed to the cross. And they must actually die. As in, they must no longer be there. We must labor to put sinful desires to death, which means we no longer have those desires, but in fact seek the Holy Spirit's replacement of them with godly desires. We must consider the needs of our brothers and fellow workers as more important than our own. If we refuse to put these things to death, we make light of sin and dishonor the cross of our Lord. Now, let me tell you one of the surest ways to die. To your selfish ambition. Confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins. Naturally, we do not want to confess our sins. I don't want to confess my sins to my brothers. I don't want to confess my sins to my children. And I certainly don't want to confess my sin to my wife. Are you kidding me? Confessing my sin would mean I would have to be vulnerable. I might get burned. What will they think of me? They'll think I'm wacko. They won't think I'm the perfect and holy person who I think I am. After all, confessing sin wouldn't be really very Christ-like, right? I mean, Jesus never confessed any sins. Right? No, he didn't. Jesus never confessed sin because he didn't have any. But he did something much more shameful. Much more humiliating. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took My sin. He claimed my sin and the condemnation that God righteously poured out on that sin for my sake. The perfect and sinless, the impenetrable Son of God made himself vulnerable for my sake. And I can't own up to the sins that I commit. To my brothers, to my wife, to my children. Jesus lowered himself and died for our sake. And he's called us to do the same for one another. Lower yourself. Magnify Jesus Christ. Build up your brothers and your sisters. Confess your sin and repent. Jesus' blood is sufficient not only to blot out your guilt, but to free you to forgive the guilt of others and love them as Christ loved you. You must make yourself vulnerable and admit your sin. It is the beginning of Christian fellowship. And yes, I know. Jesus is calling you to be vulnerable with people who sin against you. He's calling you to be vulnerable with men and women who are naturally your enemies. But you can be sure that he never calls you to do anything that he has not already done you even as I have loved you love one another and as we begin to live this way as we bring our sin into the light and begin to walk as children of light the world will look at us and not be able to miss our love for one another in fact Jesus says that this is how the world will know us because we die for one another every day Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you have poured out your love upon us. We thank you for giving your life to loving your friends, and we thank you for calling sinners your friends. We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit for the work of loving one another. Give us joy in considering the needs of others better than our own. We thank you for loving us, for spilling your blood, for cleansing us that we might stand in the presence of the Father, pure and blameless and holy. And we pray that we would build one another up in the work of pursuing holiness. With our whole heart, let us love one another, Lord Jesus, as you have loved us. Give us your spirit, please. We pray in your name. Amen.